Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. It is the place to be, the home of common sense, the place for the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth. And I have to tell you that every now and again because sometimes people forget. Because when you go elsewhere and you see the kind of rubbish that they pump out, you begin to wonder what exactly is going on out there. I mean, I was listening to what can only be described as the state broadcaster. We try not to say the words BBC here anymore. Uh, this morning, you could not have concealed their glee any more uh, than they could when they were talking about Donald Trump and the, the Trump derangement syndrome that some people refer to, because the BBC definitely, definitely suffer from it. Lots of people out there on social media are absolutely sure that Donald Trump is definitely guilty. Uh, we're going to be talking about it on this show, but not from that perspective. We're going to be talking about it from the perspective of why people are so permanently screwed up about one individual who actually was elected president of the United States of America and may well be elected again. Lots of people, the Ramonas mostly, are absolutely sure that he's guilty and that he's going to jail. They don't like the fact that, of course, even if he does go to jail, he could still be the president while in jail which I think would be hilarious. But there we are. That's just me and my sense of humour. Peter Whittle has joined us this morning, I'm delighted to say. He hasn't been here for a while, but we've got lots to talk about. Founder and director of the New Culture Forum. Uh, we're going to talk to him about Rishi Sunak and what exactly Rishi Sunak is up about, what he's up to, uh, whether he's got any chance whatsoever of convincing everybody that he is the right man to be leading this country and the right man to perhaps win the election. So Keir Starmer this morning uh, is accused of basically having his policy shaped by Just Stop Oil. They've uh, committed themselves to that. They've announced it themselves and he must be very happy uh, that they've done so front page of the daily mail we'll also be talking of course about many other things as well as crime not enough space in our prisons for uh, housing all the criminals not enough police to arrest all the criminals so what are we supposed to do just let them take over 03444991000. Also, we will revisit the bear, the bear, the man in the bear suit in the Chinese zoo, uh, which we're pretty sure, I am anyway, that it's not a bear. We've also found a panda, and I'm not sure whether there's a man inside that as well. So we'll give you that uh, a little bit later on. Also, there's some more young police out there uh, helping to fight the crime uh, that's going on. Lots to do. Uh, don't forget you can call us as well, 0344 uh, This is the Independent Republican Mike Graham. Let us get it on. So, it's another grey day uh, in the summer, London town, August the 2nd. Uh, Peter Whittle is here. Peter, how nice to see you. Hello there, Mike. Good to we've see been, you. We've been uh, knowing each other. Well, I don't know, I can't speak English anymore. <laughs> no. We've known each other a long time. Yes. We have, I'm not sure if we've ever had you in this particular no, studio. No, it's first for me. Um, but we've done a lot of things together. Yeah. Um, you're a man that, uh, that has some great beliefs. Uh, the New Culture Forum does some amazing work. There's yeah. some tremendous sort of... Uh, videos that that documentaries um things that that kind of follow the modern history of britain if you like that's right yes i suppose really our time has sort of come in a way mm. as a think tank uh might because um you know we are all about cultural issues yeah um, when we started people were far more obsessed about economic ones yeah and of course all the cultural issues i mean that broadly yeah. you know national identity immigration all of that um and left-wing bias all of those things now right to the fore yeah and uh so so we're sort of very very busy um so we've got branches all over the country now and are you finding that more and more people are coming to you to see what you're about and, yeah. and, and what your points of view are? Because Peter Hitchens talks about this, that this is a sort of, yeah. you know, people talk about long COVID. I talk about long Blair. You know, this mm. is Tony Blair who set up all of this kind of, you know, um, culture war scenario. And it's now sort of playing out because all the people that were children during Tony Blair's reign have now been through school. They've probably been through university. And now they're presenting themselves in the civil service, um, in our banking institutions, in, in all sorts of what you might call establishment jobs. Mm. But they've all become very left-wing. Exactly. Well, I think the level of indoctrination uh, through education and universities is uh, has been so high for mm. so long. So, as you said, they're now in HR departments, these people, yeah. are often on very, very spurious degrees. But they've all been kind of really indoctrinated with these general beliefs. That's why... They all seem to think the same thing about everything. Yeah. Uh, we were discussing a bit earlier. Yes, and, and not only do they seem to think the same thing, but they, they are kind of frightened to differ yeah, from, yeah. from the status quo. And the status quo has massively moved. You exactly. know, when I was young, the civil service was seen, generally speaking, as a kind of Sir Humphrey-type figure, yeah. you know, small-c yeah. conservative, but very reliable. Yeah. You know, now we've got people writing pronouns on their emails, you know, saying that we must have diversity and inclusion, don't actually do any jobs, don't even go to the office, work from home. I mean, it's incredible switch around in, in sort of yeah. 20 years. It's extraordinary. In fact, I think uh, the real big, one of the big watersheds, you mentioned Blair there, 
without, without question, 50%, over 50% of kids going to university, that's made a big difference to their general political outlook. But also, you know, you've got a situation where, for example, it was under Blair that mm. there's been this massive demographic change yes. that, that came in, right. basically. It was really turbocharged yes. by Blair. Um, but also, it's the general creep through all of our institutions, uh, which is now gradually coming to light. We've seen it, you know, with uh, the banks and yeah. with Nigel. It's almost, it's what he hasn't stumbled on it, but it's almost like he stumbled on something. Yeah. You know, and so we sort of see... But how useless have they been over this whole issue? And I saw the story yesterday Today was that they've now offered him the Coots account back. That's right. And quite rightly, he's saying, well, hang on a minute, yeah. you know, let's have a conversation, uh, let's see some compensation. Yeah. Uh, and what about all these other thousands of bank accounts that have been shut down all over the sector? Yes, exactly. Uh, again, I don't think people realise or have understood quite how widespread this has been. I mean, there's been a story just today about uh, Jeremy Hunt, you mm. know, ch- Chancellor, uh, basically being denied a, a bank account from uh, Monzo. And the, again, what's emerged in that case is all these sort of uh, certain bank employees talking about evil Tories, mm. you know, talking about, you know, hoping that the Tories are wiped out. So just sheer, not just political hostility, but sheer hatred. Yeah. Uh, but deranged, if anything. Well, the sort of Emily Maitlis brigade. Yes, exactly. You know. um, and, and so therefore, maybe, Mike, maybe what Nigel is doing with this new campaign of his um, will gradually open up the whole of this issue. I mean, mm. we at the uh, New Culture Forum talk a lot about what you might call public bodies, so yeah. museums yes. and uh, colleges, universities, things right. like that. Um, it's all much of a muchness now. Mm all populated by the same people. It's been like a a revolution from the top. Yes, and it's happened sort of by stealth almost because we haven't... I wonder whether it's our fault for not paying attention um, or whether it's sort of something that's a bit more insidious than that and that they have actually had this plan all along. I think there's a fair fair amount of long march through the institutions, but at the same time, I think it's not our fault. It's the Conservatives' fault for just simply accepting Mm. the situation. I mean, never, ever... Uh, speaking up about it uh, during the really bad time in 2020 yeah. you know, with BLM and all right. the statues that was a culture war that was and you know Boris Johnson had to be basically sort of pulled yeah. in front of the camera to say of, anything yes but it kind of went away because BLM in the end was a, was a fake sort of movement and in fact it was not something that was cogent enough mm. to be held together at the centre mm. and because all of these people sort of jumped on the bandwagon and then realised that there was nobody driving it yes exactly no I think that in that case yes it's been discredited I would say that the General motives behind it are still very, very much there. The the sympathies with it are very, very much there amongst the people that we're talking about. Yeah. Um, essentially, what it all amounts to, I would say, is an outright attack mm. on our kind of society. And our way of know? life. Yeah. Because I call it that, yeah. because our way of life is under attack. Yeah. Which brings us to Donald Trump. Yep. Um, you know, I saw um, the story break last night, saw people jumping all over it. Yet again, you know, using phrases like these are the most serious uh, charges ever laid against the president, former president, since the last serious charges laid against the former president. You know, and there are people who are convinced that he's guilty. Uh, and, and, and there are people in, I mean, Julie Hartley Brewer was talking about the people in this country, generally speaking, who think Donald Trump is guilty and should be dragged through the town and hanged and, until he, you know, cheers up or whatever, um, are the same people who wanted to undo the Brexit vote uh, in 2016. Well, that's actually a, quite a good comparison. Um, one of the uh, uh, defences of Trump is being put by, uh, put about now, also by his kind of uh, opponents in the uh, race to become the no- uh, nominee. Yes. Um, so be- people on his own side, um, they are more or less saying that the government and Ministry of Justice in this case uh, and uh, the FBI, they're all being weaponized against Trump. Mm. Now, it's hard to deny that. Right. These are serious charges. Yeah. And, and in fact, without being going for hyperbole, they are the most serious that certainly he's faced, if not the whole of American history. Um, but the fact is, is that uh, they are out to get him. They've yeah. been out from the very, right. very beginning. They're going to keep going on and on. What they don't kind of realize, I think, Mike, is that each time one of these things comes along, like in this case, uh, these uh, criminal charges, he sees it as an opportunity. Yeah. And, and and it is an opportunity because every time he gets charged with something, yeah. his popularity goes up. The people exactly. who like him, and I'm, I slightly worry about that 
um, sort of dynamic because I don't think it's good for democracy to have people so divided and so polarised that they believe everything that one person says and disbelieve everything that somebody else says. You know, I don't want our country to go that way. But it sort of has, in a, in a way, with Boris Johnson. Boris leaving has made it slightly better. Mm. But there was definitely a similarity between the people on the left who hated Boris Johnson with a passion mm. and thought he was to blame for everything. Well, I mean, they talk about the deep state in yeah. America and they talk about the way in which it is against uh, a Republican such as Trump. It was similar here. We lived through it, Mike. Do you remember those, what, four years between the referendum yeah. and... Uh, oh, yeah. When I remember sitting endlessly for hours on end on, on College Green yeah. in stalemate, where in 2019 particularly, where nothing happened and nothing could happen. But all the kind of you know agencies of the state, mm. the judiciary, the media, all of these, yeah. but you know, they all kind of came together to try yes. to thwart what was in a Lady Hale with a little yes, spider lapel button. So it's sort of similar. Yeah, it, it, I think it fundamentally changes your whole attitude to your own institutions, or at least it did with me. Yeah. But I think in the case of Trump, um, 74 million people, as you say, think he can walk on water. Mm. That is really not changing. I think he stands a very good chance, actually, of being elected. Uh, well, he's way ahead in the polls, yeah. and he's yeah. certainly way ahead in the Republican polls. Yeah. You know, There's no exactly. other Republican coming anywhere near him. But what's interesting is that the people who defend him over there, and I was watching quite a lot of the overnight stuff in America uh, on places like Newsmax and on Fox and other places, where people are saying, this is a free speech issue. This is not about you know breaking the law as such. Mm. You know, But they're basically doing him for things that he said. And even in the indictment, I'm going to read you this because it's quite an important paragraph, it says the defendant had a right like every American to speak publicly about the election and even to claim falsely that there had been outcome determinative fraud during the election and that he had won. Mm. So they're effectively saying that we're accusing him of trying mm. to derail the election mm. by saying these things. However, um, he was allowed to say them yes. under the Constitution. The only sort of strange thing I think about Trump uh, in this particular instance is why he keeps, in a way, harking back. Mm. I mean, forget about the indictment for a minute. Even in his general campaigning, he keeps harking back to I, I lost, I, you know, it was rigged, I lost the election because it was rigged. Yeah. And you sort of think, well, wait a minute, you know, surely there are a lot of people that actually might actually favour you being mm. president, but they can't have any truck with any of that. Why didn't you just leave that? Yeah. You know? Well, um, they're doing the job for him, though, yeah, because if he yeah. wanted to leave it, that would be one thing. But he can't leave it because actually they keep coming after him. And he's now accusing them uh, in a counter sort of argument of interfering with the 2024 election. Yes. And you could say he's not maybe wrong about that. One of the things he said is that why have they waited two and a half years? Yes. They've waited because they wanted to do it now. But everything so far that has really been up against Trump, the, the really serious charges, for example, about Russian intervention, total baloney, yeah. you know, total baloney. Uh, he's not being charged, by the way, in this instance, with the incitement to insurrection. No. A lot of people might think that's what actually right. it's about, but for some reason they've left that out. Right. Well, they've left that out because they can't bring anything on that yeah. because they tried to impeach him twice, let's not forget, and they failed to, yeah, to, yeah. to, to impeach him. And, and as um, we heard this morning from one of the Republican overseas, uh, Greg Swenson, uh, he said, look, they've tried um, the place to do what they want to do was either at the ballot box yeah. or in the Senate and in the House and uh, when, when they wanted to try and impeach him yeah. and they failed. Yes. My one concern really is that when we come to 2024... If Trump is there and wins, or if indeed if Biden, would it be Biden or whoever it is? There? I'm not sure Biden's going to last the course, to be honest. Right. But whoever it is, I think there could be major civil convulsions. I mean, you and I know America well. I've never been more sort of disturbed, shall yeah. we say, by what's going on there. Yeah, you know? exactly. I, think that I still go there quite a bit. My mother still lives there. Mm. Um, but it's in a bad place right now. It is all the things that we used to love about America, I'd say, that sort of spirit of kind of can-do, mm. that confidence, also the patriotism. Yeah. You can still find those in, in pockets, actually very large yeah. pockets, but it's not the overriding thing that, that goes through all of society anymore. It, you know, basically, it is the most left-wing mm. presidency we've ever had, but the actual culture has become much more left-wing. It has. It has here. Well, we'll talk about that in a second. We'll just take a, a short break. We're talking to Peter Whittle, founder and director of the New Culture Forum. Uh, we've got culture wars to talk about next because, of course, we've seen uh, the cost of coffee ridiculousness this week. We've now seen Dove Soap doing the same thing. It came from America. We'll talk about that. This is Talk TV. Online on DAB Plus, Talk Radio and Talk TV.
Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. We're here with Peter Whittle, founder and director of the New Culture Forum, looking out, gazing out across the London skyline. Yeah. It still doesn't look particularly summery, uh, but wherever you are, I hope you're enjoying it. It's cold. It's cooled down a bit in Europe as well. I mean, the fanaticism of, of the kind of woke now, from the weather, you know, mm. to brand awareness, to, you know, posters that have to show um, trans men with mastectomies. Mm. I mean, it's an incredibly weird world we now live in, isn't it? Well, it, I say it's a weird Western world. Yeah. Still, I think uh, this, these things aff affect the English-speaking West the worst. So yeah. America, New Zealand, Australia, and of course us. I mean, it is, um, I find the, the latest uh, batch of it, Mike, uh, particularly with Costa Coffee yeah. and these cartoons, yeah. these merry little cartoons that I think Doc Martens have also used. Which is sort of sinister in a way. Yes, I think they're quite sinister. And also just, just obscene. Mm. I find them obscene. And this is glorifying... Mutilation of of girls, you know, having double mastectomies. Um, I find it just appalling. Mm. I think most people do. They can't understand why it is that brands such as these even adopt these mm. kind of. Well, tactics. we had a lot of calls yesterday from women who have had mastectomies as a result of suffering from cancer, yeah. and they're not very happy about yeah, this. Yeah. And, and that kind of point of view is not taken into account at all yeah. because you know the people who are the activists in these companies seem to think that. Um, what I would regard as, as heterosexual men and women, don't have any skin in the game. It's yeah. nothing that we can, you know, it doesn't apply to us, yeah. basically. I think people, to an extent, Mike, have got to try and wake up about a lot of this. I mean, what we saw in America, going back there, for Dylan Mulvaney, you know, the, the, yeah. the trans guy, a uh, huge kickback uh, when it came to Bud Light, and they try to use him on Bud Light. Well, they practically ruined that brand altogether, haven't they? Ruined the brand economically. They went down the pan. Uh, people have lost their jobs over it, and all of that. Um, but it shows you that that kind of that kind of action can work. And mm. I would say that really, if people take this seriously, and they should, they should boycott these mm. brands. Right? Boycott. Yeah, teach they them have, They have more power than they think. Yes. People have more power than they, they think. They really do. Ben and Jerry's is the same, isn't yes. it? I mean, they've been doing it for ages. They come out, I mean, they come out with the most ridiculous tweet on yeah. uh, Independence Day yes. in America saying that America should give back you know, half of its land uh, to the indigenous people, yeah. you know, not at all admitting that they actually, you know, are sitting on it with their factories in Vermont, uh, which is actually, are they going to give the land back? Are they going to close their factories down? Well, of course they're not. Yeah, I mean, a lot of it is a strange mixture. On the one hand, you have the employees, often quite junior, yeah. uh, who believe all this stuff. But then uh, when you go up a few levels, uh, quite often it's a, a purely a cynical exercise in mm. just showing exclusivity or whatever. But, it, but I think that it can work if you respond by not buying the products. Yeah. I mean, I did this with Gillette, if yeah. you remember, quite a few years yes. ago. They appalling anti-men ads mm. that they did. Um, so woke. And I just thought, that's, that's it, not going to use them anymore, and I still haven't. And as a result, one brand came up, you know, uh, pretty much out of nowhere yeah. and was successful. And I think that people really have got that economic power. They yes. really have. I mean, I saw an incredible ad the other day, which is for a company I'd never heard of before, and I, so I'm not even going to give them a plug. It's some lingerie company. Yeah. And if you saw this poster of a oh, guy yeah. with a beard wearing a bra and suspender belt yeah. and stockings. Yeah. And it was a sort of 90-sheet poster somewhere in, in, I don't know, it was Oxford or somewhere like that. And you're kind of going, sorry, what, what are we, who are you selling to yeah, exactly yeah. here? Well, it's killed, I mean, Stone De it's killed Stone Dead, a whole sort of section of satire and comedy. Yeah. You know, th these would all have yes. been uh, uh, skits at one point. Mm. That kind of thing is dead insulting. I know exactly the poster yeah. you mean. It's a bearded guy, yeah. you know, hairy chest and all the rest of it, in lingerie. Uh, and it's for, I think it's something, it says something like, uh, this is you know, it's great for, for women, that's all women or for all women yeah. or something. It's a guy, you right. know, and don't insult yeah, he's not women. A woman. I yeah. know, incredible. Yeah, but I mean, people in Scotland have said this to me that in the time of Nicola Sturgeon, uh, I don't know whether it's any better or worse now, but when she was in charge, you know, April Fool stories just didn't get done anymore because the reality <laughs> yep. of politics yeah. in Scotland was so weird yes. that, that you couldn't actually convince people of anything else. Yes. Um, let's finish up with, with the, the story you touched upon earlier, yeah. I, uh, immigration. Massive yeah. story yeah. For, the, for the next year because it will be a big issue at the election. Mm. Keir Starmer still really doesn't have any immigration policy from what we can see. Mm. His five sort of, you know, planks of what he wants to do don't include immigration. Mm. Um, why can't the government sort this out, especially the small boats business? I think the will is not there. Mm. Like, I think the will is not there. Um, 
it's getting more and more surreal by the moment. Yeah. There was a story I saw uh, a few days ago of basically um, immigrants being put up, illegal immigrants being put up in basically new houses, yeah. luxury houses, in an area which had massive homelessness. Right. Um, this is, I find, obscene, disgusting, um, and I think people should start getting seriously angry yeah. about it. Everything that you hear the government say between now and the election in 2024 is going to be window dressing. Yeah. I don't think they... Well, I find this argument about moving them from a hotel to a barge to, you know, to a, mm. to a, a, a disused army camp, you know, people don't care about that. Yeah. They just don't want them to come. Exactly. They don't, want, they don't want to think about where they're being moved to. Exactly. I think the decision has been made uh, that basically uh, we are going to carry on very much as we were before, mm. the decision by the Tories and Labour, because there's not really any difference on this issue no. anymore. It's just purely what they say. Well, the only thing that Labour has said, and it hasn't been said officially as policy for the, for the whole party, is that they would have processing plants, uh, processing centres and offices in France, yeah. which doesn't solve the problem. No, no. You know. I, I think that Labour is basically open, open borders. It's yeah. an open borders party. Right. I think what is particularly... Uh, grotesque really is the way in which the Tories still insist Home Secretary after Home Secretary after leader after leader that we are going to get the numbers down last year the highest ever 650 mm. net that's that was net, net. 1.2 million 1. before the million. people left this is people say this is not sustainable mm. I mean that's rather nice language I would say that this is sort of nation changing stuff yeah, it really and is. you know it, it just simply cannot go on yeah. and I think the, the only real way anything will change is if there is some form of new party yeah I think that has to happen but maybe the system has to change yep. Mr Peter we could talk all day great to see you uh, we'll you, have you right. back on soon I'm sure uh, New Culture Forum check it out uh, he's the founder and the director of it some great YouTube stuff going on out there uh, we'll be meanwhile talking about crime and punishment because uh, there's plenty of crime but there isn't any punishment this is Talk TV Nationwide by your side Talk Radio and Talk TV Welcome back to the Independent Republican, Mike Graham, right here on Talk TV. Lots of you getting in touch and lots of you uh, to talk to as well. Don't forget, you know the number, 0344 499 1000. We've got many things uh, to talk about. Chris in Horsham says, I like to keep abreast of the news, so goodbye and good riddance to Costa Coffee. See you, latte. See what you did there. Uh, I'm still rather pleased with uh, Alex Phillips, who yesterday came up with the uh, the new kind of coffee that you can get uh, from Costa, which is called a Crappuccino. Uh, how about this from Paul in Fife? Mike, if any more evidence was needed that Trump is the victim of a massive witch hunt, the new charges being brought against him, why wait till the guy is in the middle of his campaign to be president again? He was attacked relentlessly when he was in office, and let's be honest, certain quarters in the UK joined in. Sturgeon didn't want him in Scotland. Khan didn't want him in London. It's a disgrace and America's shame. I so much want him to be uh, president of the United States again. Uh, the Biden family are the biggest criminals ever to have inhabited the White House. Well, I think there's a lot of people who would say that that is true, but I find it ridiculous um, that some outlets in this country have made Donald Trump the sort of public enemy number one. Because first of all, uh, it's an American uh, story. It's, a, it's a, a thing that's happening in a foreign country. You know, if this was going on in France or uh, even Turkey uh, or Vietnam or even, you know, uh, Holland, nobody would be interested. But Trump somehow vilifies so much in people, somehow brings out the worst in people, and somehow everybody who doesn't like him thinks he's a criminal, which is simply not true. 0344 499 1000. Let's talk to Ian Aitchison, former prison governor, Home Office senior civil servant. As I said before, Ian, a very good morning to you. Um, there's plenty morning, of crime mate. out there, but there's not much punishment. Um, so if you have that sort of conversation, let's start with the crime first. The shoplifters and burglars now supposedly facing mandatory prison service, uh, prison sentences. I find it amazing that the police come out and say they're going to do their jobs. And it's actually a news story. Yes, I mean, one of the problems uh, that we've had uh, in the past is the um, lack of detection of, of shoplifting. But it, I think it's actually worse than that. Yeah. Um, it's that shoplifting has effectively become decriminalized. And what's the impact of that? Well, the impact as ever uh, is felt most acutely in some of our poorest, most deprived communities where you see, for example, the co-op this week saying they're going to shut up shop mm. and showing very distressing footage of shop workers uh, begging for police help and there isn't any because shoplifting has fallen off the agenda. Shoplifting is really important, actually, because a lot of the people committing um, those offences, uh, I think uh, about, uh, you know, 
75% of them will be addicted to, to drugs mm. uh, in some form or other. But there is a problem here with saying, well, we can, we can uh, build prisons and build our way out of this, because at the moment, we've got a prison system that is almost full to capacity. And if you send people who've committed low-level offences into our prisons at the moment, some of the most disordered prisons where every metric of uh, uh, violence and despair is, is off the scale, you're actually going to weaponize that offending behavior and you're simply going to turn out people who are more adept offenders at the end of a prison sentence, a short prison sentence uh, that's making no difference. Is there any so, is there any truth to the to the say the, the the theory anyway that if you send somebody to prison who is um, a sort of not maybe a first time offender but a relatively uh, new offender mm. can they be frightened enough in prison to never want to go back? Um, I think that does hold true for some offenders. Um, certainly, you know you've you've got a lot of people who their experience of custody is, is so brutalizing yeah. uh, that they never want to go back. So you can. Uh, to some extent, scare people straight. Mm. But I think, you know, particularly if we're talking about, you know, we've got about, uh, of our 86,000 people in prison, about 10,000 of them, according to the latest estimates, are in for drug-related offences. Now, a lot of them are in prison and should be in prison for a very long time, for example, being concerned in the supply of Class A drugs. But a significant number of them are uh, prolific offenders who are feeding an addiction. And you're not going to scare people like that straight by mm. going into prison. Prison is actually a place where uh, about 8% of people who go into prison for the first time report that they've become addicted to a substance while inside yeah. the prison. Well, there's so no shortage. Is, is of, a, I mean, I remember when I was living in mm. Scotland and Socton Prison, just on the mm. outskirts of Edinburgh, uh, had a real problem where people were literally throwing drugs over the fence. Yeah. Uh, whether they were inside pigeons or inside mm. various, you know, different animals or whatever it was. But the drugs availability in prison was better than it was uh, in, in sort of uh, right. parts of Edinburgh. And there are plenty of drugs right. so, in Edinburgh. You know. so, so the point is you're not going to scare those people straight, to use the, the phrase, um, who are chemically addicted to, to substances like heroin and so on. What you need is a different form of disposal for those people. But what you need actually before that is the certainty of detection and the certainty of consequence and sanction. Mm. At the minute, that is missing. And what happens then is you you get zones of criminal impunity created that torture decent people who are trying to bring up families in these communities that are blighted by crimes that go undetected and for, for whom there is no sanction until, you know, it's the fifth or sixth or seventh or more time in front of the magistrate who gets frustrated by the lack of, of, of any impact of any community-based penalty. Right. We can we could talk about that and sends this person to prison. But unfortunately, those people are now being sent into a teeming, violent, brutalizing environment where many of the you know, the pathologies, if you like, that have driven them into crime are only going to be magnified. And that's a massive societal problem. Yeah. It's massively expensive. It ruins that person's uh, life. And that person then goes on to victimize others. We've got, you know, we're banging up more people uh, than most countries in Europe per head of the population. Yet we have the worst, one of the worst reconviction rates uh, right. in, in Europe. Something is going wrong. What I would say Mike, you know, uh, as part of the solution is to look at people who are um, convicted of non-violent acquisitive crime related to a drug um, addiction and then have a completely different disposal for those people. I don't mean, incidentally, a community disposal. I mean some kind of compulsory secure Mm. treatment and rehabilitation that is outside the criminal justice system and is perhaps led by, for example, the NHS. I think if you did that, you would then create the space to be able to deal effectively with the people that we really should care about. And those are the really scary people who commit... Because, uh, yeah, know, inter- interpersonal well, because, violence. Well, because let's not forget, you know, there's two sort of opposite sides of the of the of the of the triangle here. I think to try and get to the point of the triangle, if you know what I mean, where you've got, you know, the the, the need to safeguard the public from bad people who mm. shouldn't be allowed to roam free to do them harm, um, and then also the the need not to make those bad people worse in order to get to the point where they can be released back into society mm. and they've been mm. fixed. So it seems to me what mm. you're saying is spend more money not on building more prisons, but on putting the right people in the prisons 
and maybe creating another place for other people to be treated. And I, and I, I kind of accept that, yeah. but I wouldn't give it to the NHS because they've got enough problems. You know, they can't even run well, the NHS. Can I, can I just come back to it? <laughs> it, it, it? It's some and some. We actually do need to build our way out of the prisons crisis that we have. Mm. The, the government initially talked about an ambition to, to create, I think, 20,000 what they called modern prison places. Yeah. The, that ambition was to build new prisons, to be able to shut down some of these teeming Victorian dungeons yeah. that are engine rooms of further offending yeah. and places that it, it is impossible to uh, do any rehabilitation with and where it's very unsafe for staff. So we're, we're, I think we're going to, that ambition is good to have decent places for people to be sentenced yes. to and for people to work in and safe places. I mean, we haven't talked about staff safety as a, as a kind of um, right. driver of all of, of all well, of it this. It should be a given, shouldn't it? Well, you, you would think that. Uh, but, you know, uh, just a few days ago, the most horrendous statistics on staff safety were, uh, were uh, on prison safety mm. generally were, were released. 26% um, increase in self-inflicted deaths, 52% increase in self-harm in female establishments, 11% yeah. increase in assaults, 32% increase in sexual assaults and staff, serious staff assaults, which means broken bones, hospitalization, right. scalds, stabs, uh, uh, happening at a rate of about two a day. Mm. You cannot help fix broken people with broken staff. And that is a scandal that needs to be addressed either by this government or whatever government replaces mm. it. Because without those people, those men and women who pull on a uniform to go into these places every day, feeling safe and confident to be able to do their job that we society asks of them, all of this stuff is for the birds. doesn't matter how many mm. people are sent to prisons uh, you know, for shoplifting or for anything else. If those places are fundamentally unsafe places to work in, you're not going to have yeah. any of the benefit for all of that investment. Yes. Well, I mean, you know, the other problem as well that we need to talk about is um, if the government uh, are going are to issue instructions to allow small time, what they call, you know, first time offences like shoplifting, like theft, like drug possession, mm. um, to be resulting in only a caution, Where's the disincentive for people who do those kinds of things to stop doing them? Because I don't think there is one. Well, there, clearly there isn't, uh, because you see those people returning again and right. again into the criminal justice system. So what we need to talk about is not necessarily filling prisons with these people, but, but to say there will be consequence here. There is an absence of consequence. I've said before, that creates zones of impunity in working class areas uh, in particular, you know, like places that I grew up in where you know criminality becomes worse because there is no sense of authority and incivility becomes worse the the morale of the community starts to slide it starts to become a place where people don't want to bring up families i mean one one of the uh, most amazing things I, I remember seeing on tv was when rory stewart when he was doing his pitch for uh, a, a mayor of london i think he went on a walkabout and he was talking to some people uh, in in a community and mm. you could see the, uh, the the gleaming towers of the the city and docklands in the background and he was asking this this couple uh were you know were they were they intending to have children and they said you know we, we would like to but we're going to have to wait until the area that we live in is safe because mm. it's not safe to bring up children at the moment and that's in the sixth richest economy in the world yeah. in the shadow of all of that uh wealth that we have people talking like that is absolutely intolerable but if Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Of course, those people don't live in places that middle class criminologists live in, who have got the ear of government, it seems to me, when we're talking endlessly about um, decarceration. You know, what, what our problem is here in this country, uh, you know, when people talk about ending uh, short sentences, is not that short sentences are bad, per se. Mm. You know, there, there, there are lots and lots of prison systems and jurisdictions in Europe that do short sentences that are even shorter than ours. Our problem is that we do them so badly. Yeah. And so we do them badly because the system is absolutely stuffed with people 
who shouldn't be in it. And that means that there is no hope of actually effectively rehabilitating all the people that really do need our attention. And that's why I go back yeah. to the point of saying, yes, we need certainty and consequence and sanction for people who commit low-level crimes. It's really important. It was demonstrated in New York in the 80s and 90s when it was cleaned up that if you focus on low-level quality of life issues... Uh, and you target those criminals, you stop them turning into worse criminals, and you stop the degradation of these communities. That, let's face it, none of us, do, you know, that the, the talk and a pine in these programmes live in anymore. Well, I wouldn't say that. I live in London, and you never know from one day to the next whether the street that you well, live in uh, is going to be witnessing somebody being murdered in it, or somebody being robbed in it, or somebody being stabbed in it. You know, I would say that almost all of London now uh, is a very dangerous place to live. Well, well, perhaps, but I, I'm talking particularly about uh, areas of very low socioeconomic growth and uh, ambition and opportunity. Uh, those areas always suffer first uh, at the hands of, uh, you know, uh, progressive criminology. Mm. Uh, and what we need actually is to, and I've talked about this before, uh, we, we need a kind of expeditionary um, style uh assault on these communities to support them and to rescue them where we're building police stations not closing them down but putting police stations in those areas restoring a sense of order and authority and going after the types of people that are destroying those communities and of course going after those people to offer them help i'm, I'm very much in favor of being able to give people a choice mm. you know people who are addicted to drugs who are committing repeat offenses certainly say and have the resources that's important to be able to say we we want to help you uh, we want to help you get out of this cycle because it's destroying your life and you're wrecking other people's lives, li lives and livelihoods as well in the process. But if you refuse to do so, then we're going to make life impossible for you. And back in the noughties when I was at the Home Office as Director of Community Safety in South West England, there was a, a strategy that was created called Prolific and Priority Offenders to do just that. It was resourced. I don't even know if it exists anymore, and probably nobody in government does either. Uh, but it was resourced to be able to grip the very people that we're talking about and to say, you're going to be offered a choice. But, you know, the choice is either you uh, submit yourself to treatment and rehabilitation or we make life impossible for mm. you. Yeah. And think, we need a lot more of that. That's not soft justice at all. No, that's intelligent justice, which sounds to me like is what we need rather than uh, just a knee jerk reaction. Listen, great to talk to you, Ian. Thanks very much. We could do it all day as well. Uh, Ian Aitchison there uh, on soft justice, on crime, on punishment. There isn't any, and it's going wrong. And what do we do to fix it? I want your views on that. 0344 499 1000. Christine in Surrey says Chinese bear, fake or human, whatever it is, get it out of that horrible concrete environment. On the other hand, I have a solution to our overcrowded prisons, put repeat offenders in orange jumpsuits and stick them in zoos for us to gawk at. One week for every offence. Very good idea. Dress them up as bears, why not? This is Talk TV. His might, providing a welcome dose of common sense for the common people. Solid talk. I'll talk. The independent republic of Mike Graham. On the app, on your mobile, talk radio and talk TV. Good morning and welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV, the place to be uh, for all the things you need to know about and all the views that you would like to impart to us because, of course, one of the things that we do uh, rather better than anybody else, I believe anyway, uh, is to augment your views, to amplify them, uh, to let you say what you want uh, and let us pass those views on to the powers that be. To wit, you know, we can talk about crime and punishment all day. Uh, we can talk to Ian Aitchison, who's an expert on prisons, who used to work in the Home Office, who knows an awful lot uh, about crime and punishment. But somehow, an awful lot of you disagree with much of what he said. Uh, he was concerned about locking people up for the wrong reasons, locking people up for too long, making those prisons too horrible for them to actually um, do anything other than survive in. Um, there's a lot of arguments to and fro uh, that we will make, and we'll take loads of your calls coming up on that. Uh, we'll talk to Alex Salmon very shortly as well, former First Minister of Scotland, of course, leader of the Aleppo Party too. I'm going to be joining him this weekend uh, as he launches his big debating festival uh, up at the Edinburgh Festival. Friday uh, is day one. Uh, I think he's already sold most of the tickets for that, so uh, you might want to come along on Saturday when I'm going to be taking on him and Mick Lynch uh, on the subject of whether public sector workers should be allowed to go on strike. And of course, uh, were the trains working, I would have taken a train to Edinburgh, but they're not. Uh, so I might have something to say to Mr Lynch about that. Also, coming up in this hour, we're going to be talking to Charles Levinson uh, because he's a doctor and he has spotted that more people are dying this year than at the same point in 2022 and at the same point in 2021. So 
What's the answer to that particular quandary? We shall see. Uh, Matt Vickers, MP, is going to join us, Deputy Chairman of the Conservative Party. We'll ask him uh, whether Rishi Sunak is going down the right road on uh, the oil and gas exploration in the North Sea. One of his announcements this week was that he was going to involve himself in setting up some carbon capture scenarios. And Alex Salmond is here because he's going to explain what carbon capture actually is. We tried to get it explained yesterday. A lot of you said, why don't you just plant some trees? Well, let's find out if that's the answer. Alex, a very good morning to you. Morning, Mike. Very good to see you. Um, now, obviously, I'm looking forward massively to the Fringe event, which is coming up this weekend. We'll, we'll get to that in a moment. Um, but a lot of people asked me the question yesterday, what is carbon capture and is it worth 20 billion quid? Well, carbon capture, basically, the idea of extracting uh, greenhouse gases, principally carbon dioxide from industrial processes, uh, sticking it in pipelines uh, and sending it either back into the North Sea, which is pretty sensible, uh, or burning it underground, a coal mine or somewhere, which I suspect won't work. Uh, so that's it. Simply extract the carbon dioxide mainly and then send it back where it came from effectively, either underground or in aquifers, saline aquifers in the North Sea. Right. And so this plant that he wants to build, or the two plants that he wants to build, what will that actually entail? He says it's going to provide a lot of jobs for Scotland. Um, which presumably is why the SNP has been a bit quiet about it all. Um, they're being accused of uh, uh, of not joining hands with Labour and singing Kumbaya and saying, you know, just stop Rishi Sunak from ruining the planet. Um, what's the actual truth? Right, well, first of all, let's talk about the scale of what's being proposed. I mean, it was greeted uh, by the obedient uh, unionist press in Scotland as if it was the parting of the Red Sea. <laughs> Uh, in fact, uh, what are you announcing? I thought they'd from, all gone the other way up there. Well, no, no that, that's only your impression. From from <laughs> your standpoint, they're all left wing. Yeah, they are. <laughs> but no, no, it announced ten million quid effectively for the Acorn project. They said it was twenty million, but he forgot to tell them that ten million was going to Humberside. So it's ten million quid. I think the best way to look at the scale of that, Mike, is over the last twenty years. Uh, where carbon capture has been rooted and successively let down and betrayed by successive and conservative governments, £100,000 million has been extracted in revenue from the Scottish sector of the North Sea. Now, I, I know you're a dab and arithmetic. See if you can understand sure. this one. That means for every £10,000 extracted in revenues, Rishi Sunak, in his munificence as Captain Bountiful, has allocated one single pound to the ACORN project. So that's £10,000 goes from north to south, and Rishi Sunak makes a big announcement about one pound going back from south to north. That's the reality of the scale. Why that matters, of course, in terms of carbon capture, it gives an indication of the seriousness of that announcement. And that announcement is useful, it's beneficial, it will great encouragement to the future of the oil and gas industry, but it's not in terms of financial scale serious in terms of the revenues extracted from the North Sea. Right. So, I mean, Rishi Sunak, in my view, moving towards a kind of a, uh, or at least moving away slightly from the net zero um, mission that he has previously stated, I think is a good thing. I think it's slightly encouraging to look at what he wants to do more slowly rather than more quickly. So, I mean, investing more in the North Sea is a good thing, isn't it? Yes, it is. And I would go big scale for carbon capture. I mean, you know, I've been on this hobby horse since the Miller Project in 2005, which was first embarked and endorsed by Tony Blair. That was a billion pound commitment, mm. then 1,000 million. And then Gordon Brown, as soon as he became prime minister, you know what Gordon was like with the, the pennies and yeah. the money? He, he tore it up immediately. Instead of being, we'd have been, if that had gone ahead, we'd have been 15 years into the hydrogen economy mm. in the northeast of Scotland. Clean, burn fuel, the, the, the way forward, undoubtedly. You know, you've got a choice in terms of uh, heating people's homes. You can either tell them all that heat pumps work, uh, which in cold climates they tend not to. Right. So you'll have all these people with expensive heat pumps huddled in front of the electric fires. Or alternatively, you can convert their gas supply to hydrogen, and that can be done and have everybody happily in comfortable, well-heated homes for reasonable cost uh, using the existing equipment or adapted equipment to do it. And the, the, doing it with hydrogen is much better. So the hydrogen economy is good news in all sorts of ways. We could have been 15 years into it if it hadn't been for Gordon Brown's 
impecunious nature. Yes, that's unfortunately. Well, that's what happens when you get somebody in from Fife into the Chancellor's office. But what, what about the uh, uh, the idea that much of the, the infrastructure in the North Sea is now kind of slightly mm. redundant? I had a call yesterday from a guy who claimed to, to have worked in the North Sea uh, and in the old rig business, business. And he says that, you know, it's all very well saying you're going to start drilling uh, and, and exploring for new oil and gas um, um, uh, under, under the seabed, but you're going to need to bring in new rigs because the old rigs are not really fit for purpose. Yeah, I mean, uh, more importantly for this argument is the pipeline infrastructure. I mean, one of the greatest arguments for taking carbon dioxide and not sticking it in a, uh, a coal mine under your house or somewhere in the, in the south of England, yeah. uh, Mike, uh, but instead of putting it in the North Sea, is there is a, an existing pipeline infrastructure. So basically, instead, in some pipelines of, of taking uh, methane out of the, the North Sea through a pipeline, what you do is you stick the carbon dioxide in the same pipeline, hopefully a, one that's equipped to take carbon dioxide, with probably a sour gas pipeline, and take it back in and re-inject it from whence it came. Now, there are two big advantages in that. One is the cost, obviously, because the pipeline infrastructure is there in many places. But, but secondly, you know, carbon capture worldwide on scale. You know, the Greens say, oh, it's untested, it won't work, it's really greenwashed, all the rest of it. Well, that's true to a great extent, but the, the one place that carbon capture, in a way, has actually been used on scale is in the North Sea, because for many, many years, carbon dioxide has been re-injected into oil fields, not just to store it, but to enhance oil recovery. Yeah. And you know what? It hasn't escaped. Incidentally, the only two major carbon capture projects which have met expectations have been in the North Sea. Of course, they've both been Norwegian, it should be said, yeah. but nonetheless, the two that have worked have been in the North Sea. Yeah. And it, there's a lot of indications that the geological structures of the North Sea will not allow the escaping of carbon dioxide once it's placed in. So, you know, when you're embarking on a new, potentially planet-saving technology, you know, it's quite a good idea to know you've got a reasonable chance of it working. And lo and behold, there is a reasonable chance of it working at scale in the geological structures of the North Sea. That's what makes it an exciting opportunity. Now, my complaint with Rishi Sunak is he treats what should be seen as a major industrial revolution, potentially a, a planet-saving technology, because if it works, then you know, mm. there's virtually no limit to the amount of carbon dioxide you can store. Yeah. Uh, he treats it as if it's a way to, to score a quick political trick over Sir Keir Starmer and the SNP. You know, it's, you know, oh, we won the Uxbridge by-election by embarrassing Labour on congestion charges. Now we can win a few seats by embarrassing Labour on oil and gas. Mm. You know, a prime minister, a real prime minister, somebody of stature, somebody of vision, somebody looking forward, wouldn't announce it like that. They'd announce it, look, this is a major initiative to meet our obligations and preserve our industrial structure. But, you know, well, you know what? Rishi Sunak doesn't have it. He just doesn't have it to be that sort of prime minister. Yeah, that's unfortunately something I'd have to agree with you on. But what I'm saying, I suppose, about the uh, investigation of more oil and gas fields, I mean, is that a long-term um, uh, a commitment? Is it something that can happen straight away? Is it something that will have to be delayed? And, and what would you say to those people who, who continually remind us that we will run out of fossil fuels? Well, they've been, I mean, look, I, I fought a 2014 referendum uh, with the Labour and Tory parties telling me that there was no more oil and gas in the North Sea. Right. And then, lo and behold, nine years later, <laughs> a Conservative <laughs> Prime Minister announces 50 new licences. Yeah. <laughs> well, where did all this oil and gas come from? It must have all been discovered in the last nine years, Mike. Yeah, sure. So, look, what you, what you can't, I mean, the sensible thing to do, and again, Rishi Sunak has fallen down, uh, and the Labour Party are not even at the races here, and the SNP have a an ambiguous position because of their alliance with the Green Party. Mm. Uh, they've got what's called a presumption against development. The, the, the real way to proceed is to put an obligation on every single new field as a, as a license consent that they have to look to zero carbon in the extraction and make it a rigid condition. That would And that can that be done, presumably. Yeah, and the only way, but the only way they could do it, Mike, is investing in the carbon capture proposals and the pipeline network. That's the only way they could do it. Mm. And therefore, you would force the private investment at scale into these initiatives, not not just uh, Shell putting in a few million here and there to brush up their image, as they're doing in the Acorn project, but actually you would force every major developer in the North Sea to invest seriously in the carbon capture network and justify their existence mm. by doing that. And that way, potentially, 
you could reconcile continued development of oil and gas in the North Sea and the future of the planet, which everyone, even yourself, Mike, has some involvement and interest I have, in. Yeah, I have some involvement in it. But I mean, the other question, of course, is, is that will these uh, big companies want to invest in something if they fear that if they do make a load of money there and the Labour government gets in in Westminster, suddenly they're going to get hit with a windfall tax and that will be the end of their profit? Well, I've already been hit by windfall tax. I wouldn't agree too much for oil companies, uh, Mike. Uh, you know, oil companies are fantastic. You know, they, 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 they will all say when the windfall tax was eventually introduced, oh, my God, this will hurt us, hurt us. And then they announced in succession massive billions of pounds of profits. The, the real clue to oil and gas is very few oil and gas companies have ever gone out of oil and gas. Why? Because you don't make any more money anywhere else. It's just like the banks. You know, they stay in the financial sector because you can't get make more money in any other sector. And then they, they greet and whine and say, times are tough, times are hard, as they rake it in. I mean, that's just the way they are and the way they shall always be. Mm. So every time I hear a, a, a whine from the oil and gas industry, then I, I give it a heavy discount <coughs> of several percent. Yes, no, fair enough. Uh, let's talk about uh, the, the show coming up. Friday night is your opening night. Uh, up at the uh, Alex Salmon Festival of Debate, I'm calling it. I don't know whether that's what you're calling it. Uh, you're calling <laughs> no, it the no, eyes no, have it, right? Our producer, Miss Tasmina Ahmed Sheikh, <laughs> might object to that. <laughs> well, it's full of uh, the great and the good, and some not so great, and some not so good. Um, so but uh, but, uh, but I'm looking forward to talking to you and David Davis and indeed Mick Lynch on Saturday night. Uh, so tell us yep. about the format. What's going on? Well, the format is like a heavily compressed parliamentary debate, compressed into one hour. You know, John right. Berko in the chair, being like John Berko, so he'll take up about half an hour. Yeah, I imagine so. And then two teams of debaters. Well, let, let's take the the, uh, the one you're in on Saturday night, if I'm right. Yeah. Uh, the motion is public sector strikes. Let let the workers be free to strike. Not 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 not, not strike. Solve it in other ways. So it's me and Mick Lynch uh, against you and David Davis. Uh, they're calling it uh, uh, the dust up in the Spiegel tent. Is what they're calling. <laughs> I, I was at the Spiegel tent looking at the <clears throat> the stage and everything the other day, uh, and there was a couple of bookies outside with boards. Yeah, you know, like the, the races. You know, and I have to say that Mike Lynch is odds on, Mike. Yeah, well, uh, he I mean, would be, wouldn't he? Uh, he's probably well, he, fixed. He's he, probably he, fixed he's the. Uh, he's probably fixed it like he did the ballot. You know, he's good at well, that. No, he, he's well. That's that. That's the sort of merry quip that will stand you in <laughs> such good stead on Saturday night. We're expecting blood on the carpet. Indeed, I put honest on the floor and Spiegel Ted. Yeah. So anyway, it, it's the gauge in debate, and the, uh, over the course of it, I mean, we've got more cabinet sectors than you can shake a stick at. We've got three former, current, uh, I was going to say former, but I'm current party leaders and Richard Tice yeah. uh, debating Brexit. I'll tell you, Mike, you know, it was difficult to get somebody to take on Mike Lynch until you accepted the challenge. It's even been more difficult to get people to defend Brexit. But <laughs> you know, Richard Tice is nothing if not brave, so he's yeah. going to come in. He's always that. up for that. But the idea, you see, is to, is to make, I mean, politics, obviously these are important subjects, and we're not diminishing their importance. Independence, Brexit, public sector strikes, uh, abolition of the monarchy, that should be a good one. These are great subjects. But politics, in my view, does not have to be boring. I mean, you know, show is a demonstration of, of that, Mike. I yeah. mean, you, you might make, you know, quite complex subjects interesting. You, you, you invite uh, folk on to go hammer and tongs, but nonetheless put it across an interesting way. So to try and take a parliamentary debate and make it combative, certainly. A bit of blood in the carpet, certainly. It's going to be raucous. It's a, you know, it's a night, 7.50 yeah. for an hour. Uh, but also to be fun, to you know, demonstrate that you know, there is a way to make politics both informative and fun. And hopefully the, this vast array of politicians, cabinet secretaries, uh, party leaders, ex-party leaders, celebrities... Uh, will engage in the spirit of it, as indeed I think the audience will. They're yeah. raucous, but good-natured. Yeah. Well, I'm looking forward to it. It's going to be great, massively. So uh, as long as British Airways don't go on strike, I'll be fine. Uh, but thank you very much indeed. I'll see you. I'll see you then, Alex. And we'll get you and David Davis on as well before the event uh, to get a flavour uh, of what's likely to be coming up. Coming up next, though, uh, we're going to talk about the medical business and the NHS and the, and the deaths that are occurring. Excess deaths in this country this year, bigger than the last year and bigger than the year before that. Extraordinary stuff. And we'll be talking to Dr. Charles Levinson next on Talk TV. Nationwide, by your side, Talk Radio and Talk TV. 
Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. Uh, Peter in Stevenage says, this might listen to your discussion with Alex Salmon watching a programme last night on heat pumps which touched on hydrogen and numerous other forms of energy. There seems to be numerous problems with all alternative forms of energy. We really need a comprehensive understanding of all the possibilities, warts and all. I think that's right. And Leslie says, hi, why no coverage of Biden and his son Hunter uh, after Hunter's business partner accused them of taking money from Russia and China? Uh, well, I understand that there has been some coverage of that. We will be doing more of it, I'm sure. And Mick says, good timing. Our useless police get a 7% pay rise to do less work by dishing out more cautions. Did anybody ask the taxpayer? Scandalous. Well, uh, I'll tell you what, there's a lot of... Uh, things to talk about this morning uh, with Matt Vickers, who is, of course, Deputy Chairman of the Conservative Party and MP as well uh, for that lovely part of the world up there in northeast of England. Um, Matt, a very good morning to you. Good morning, Mike. Very it's nice to see you. When we all get to go home and, and do the real deal, knock on doors, and it's chucking it down here. Yeah. Absolutely drenched. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm soaking wet this morning coming into work, but it seems to have cleared up. I can see actually patches of blue sky. But, uh, you know, it'll be good for you to find out what it is the good people of Stockton think, because in the front page of the Daily Mail this morning, um, we've got the boasting Just Stop Oil activists claiming that they're now running the Labour Party. What do you make of that? Well, I think they might be running the Labour Party by the looks of things. It is unbelievable, isn't it? We've seen all the announcements this week. We've seen the pressures on people's pockets. We've decided to give more licences to oil and gas because it's just the right thing to do. Mm. It's just on every sphere. You know, it's, it's better for the environment. We're not importing this stuff. To import it from elsewhere means it, the carbon footprint's about three or four times as big. It creates jobs in this country. Wonderful. Uh, and it means we're not reliant on other countries for our oil and gas. It's a no-brainer, yeah. but these people keep gluing themselves to road uh, to the road, and now the Labour Party have decided to sell out on their manifesto uh, and, and run things by the eco-terrorists. Yeah, I mean, I suppose the question is how quickly can those licences be granted and how quickly can we see then the fruits of, of, of your labours, as it were, you know, so that we don't have to buy in, uh, you know, fracked gas from America, we don't have to rely on Qatar to ship stuff to us. I mean, how soon can this all happen? It's, I mean, we are moving apace, aren't we? There's plenty going on uh, on all fronts, but actually this commitment, we need to give certainty. So today we've got big energy companies around the table uh, with the government having a discussion about how we can speed up those plans, get things delivered at a quicker pace. But we aren't just doing oil and gas versus the green stuff. We're doing it all in a very pragmatic way. Actually, big announcements yesterday about hydrogen and what we're doing to generate uh, power energy from hydrogen and making the best use of the science and the tech that's available to us. But all of these things uh, have to work in unison. Um, we, you know, the idea that you can just that you can just stop oil and gas, even when we get to 2050, mm. uh, and we we have this net zero target. If we reach net zero, we'll still be reliant on oil and gas for 25 percent of our energy. Yeah, and is the net zero sort of deadline being pushed back a bit? It's not clear yet. Grant Shapps was on with Julie Hartley Brewer this morning. He kept referring to 2035 as the date for uh, petrol and diesel cars uh, to be bought, uh, to, to no longer be available new. Has that, has that changed? Because it was 2030 as far as we know. No, so my view is that actually you should be ambitious. You should set targets. But what we do in terms of delivering on those targets should be pragmatic, should be looking at how quickly we can deliver things and how quickly we can deliver things that work for the British people. It's not about green at all costs. If we get obsessed with this green thing, which I think at points we might have, uh, whereby you just go green at all costs, there's a real consequence for people out there who've got to pay the bills. Yeah. There's a real consequence to picking up the tab for all of that. And we've got to do it in a balanced, sensible way. But you know what? We're leading the pack. For all these eco-warriors out there telling you we're terrible, we're polluting at you know, a rate of knots, actually of the G7, the UK is leading the pack. We're decarbonising faster than anybody, but we've got to do it in a pragmatic, realistic way that's fair on the people who pay the bills. Well, I think I can tell you that that's exactly the message that people who watch this show want to hear because they want to, um, you know, if necessary, make life better for their children and their grandchildren, but they don't want to pay a premium for it. They want to be able to do the things that uh, are being recommended so, so to save energy or to drive a, a car which is less polluting, all of that stuff, fine, but don't keep charging them and don't allow them to be uh, paying through the nose for it. Yeah, I mean, I go into a lot of schools, actually. A lot of schools do lots of things now about climate, uh, energy and, and where we're getting it from and what we're doing to leave leave the world in a better state than we found it. Um, and the big thing that I always discuss with the youngsters, actually, is what's the cost? 
You know, we do lots of things, but they ha all have consequences. So it's all well and good preaching about how we can be greener faster and do even more for the environment. But everything comes with a cost. And sometimes those costs uh, help change behavior. Did you see that there was a stat this week about plastic bags? And since we char started charging for them, apparently uh, we were using about 95% less plastic bags than we used to before we charged. Mm. That doesn't cost anybody anything. We're just behaving a bit better because we're reusing our bags, etc. Sensible measure that gets people doing the right thing. But we can't just do anything at any cost to make things greener. Yeah, I get a bit fed up though when the bag for life falls apart, you know, because I mean, I'm, I haven't got that much left, much longer left, but I mean, I like the bag to last for life if it says it does. Well, apparently Morrison's bags are the best bags for life. So you, right? you need to look around at where you're shopping, perhaps. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah, I don't shop there. Thanks very much anyway. Now, let's talk about crime and punishment. Prison space is going to run out in the next three years, we're being told today. Meanwhile, uh, the government's saying we shouldn't be sending people to prison as much if they've only committed what they're calling low-level crimes like shoplifting and theft. A lot of people are not happy with that. I think, you know what, that's an interesting headline, but I don't think that necessarily rings true. In the last few years, we've toughened up sentences massively for the people who commit the worst crimes, sexual offences, uh, violent offences. Actually, we're put, putting them away for longer. We do have issues with the size of our prisons, with how many people we can actually house in prisons, but we are building, we are spending millions of pounds building more prison places, and it's the right thing to do. I think there is balance around how that works. I think one of the big things that we saw this week that was is a big issue for me uh, is around what happens to retail crime. Mm. So you may remember, I read that little bit of a rebellion on toughening up sentences for people who assault retail workers. This week we've announced that there are going to be tougher sentences for those who constantly, well, go out there shoplifting week after yeah. week after week, driving the cost of our basket up when we go shopping and just making life a misery for those people who work in shops. So I think you've got to take it in the round. I'm not sure that when you look at it, actually, we are getting... We, we are tougher across the piece in terms of the sentences we're opposing. But there are examples where now they're saying that caution should be issued qu more quickly. Yeah, but the reality, though, Matt, is that, that a, a shoplifter, for example, uh, would have to commit about 50 crimes before being locked up. And I know that you'll say, you, know, you may be right to say that you're locking up serious offenders and putting them away for longer, and that's fine. But there's also what we call low-level crime, uh, which a lot of people don't regard as low-level crime because it ruins their life. You know, if you've got a gang of kids running past you as you're trying to pay for your, you know, pound of butter that you just bought, you know, it's not very pleasant. If you work in a shop and you have constantly to worry about people coming in, harassing you and threatening you uh, and basically nicking everything they want to nick, you know, that's not a nice place to be. And I think the problem for a lot of people now is that the low-level stuff is affecting more people and their lives, are, they feel, blighted by it. So I think, yeah, I entirely agree. And actually part of what we're seeing with these cautions and part of what's come out about the cautions is the fact that the justice is going to be quicker because the police will caution you. It mm. won't go off for months and months to court, which actually is the worst thing. One of the problems that we've got in our part of the world, actually, is that some of these youngsters who are off the rails, the parents are letting them do what the hell they like. Uh, and the consequences for those things take months and months and months. And the kids carry on doing it. Actually, if that consequence is quicker... It might be lighter in this case in the terms of a caution. But actually, you need to make those cautions. The caution hits them quicker. It happens. It's on the record. And they can go and learn the lesson. Mm. If something hangs over a kid for six months and they know they're going to court, that kid is going to carry on misbehaving, particularly if they haven't got the parents behind them kicking them into shape, particularly if society hasn't passed that judgment yet because they know they're in trouble and they're going to just hang it out and commit more crime along yeah. the way. So actually, a lot of the things we do, it's about how quickly we can bring the person to yeah. rights for what Absolutely. And we did it. I think people have to fear consequences for what they do, because if they don't fear them, they're going to carry on. And they need to feel those consequences quickly. There's this new initiative now uh, that we're testing in our part of the world around instant justice. So it's about from the point when someone is, is judged to have done something wrong and goes through court, actually making the penalty of going and cleaning up the mess much quicker, because those kids need to feel, feel the sanction, mm. feel the burden of what they've done, rather than just carrying on in two years thinking, oh, yeah, I remember when I did that. You know, we need quicker justice. We need it to happen quick. And part of this caution uh, mechanism is about doing that. Yeah. Quick adjustment as well. Final thought for you, um, Matt, on the migrant issue. I mean, we saw this week uh, a bunch of law firms being closed down, rogue law firms who were helping illegal migrants stay in this country by telling a, a pack of lies and uh, pretending to be gay or pretending to be depressed, all of that. A lot of my uh, listeners and viewers are saying, all very well shutting them down. Shouldn't they be prosecuted, some of these law firms? I think you're right. These people, are, well, the SRA, the Solicitors Regulator Authority, 
has the right to go in there and levy fines. And that's exactly what they should do. And they should be prosecuted because do you know what? These people who are solicitors are in a position of trust. We in the UK have put these people, we've qualified them. We've probably paid for them to go to very nice schools, very nice colleges, very nice universities to be put in that position of trust. And now they're absolutely abusing our national interest uh, by trying to get people in on false claims. Uh, it's completely abhorrent, unacceptable, and we need to throw the full force of the law at them. Yeah, absolutely right. And as far as the, you know, the stopping of the boats goes, that's still an aim for Rishi Sunak. He said, judge me on what I say, judge me on what I do. If he gets to the end of this year and he hasn't stopped the boats, what do we do then? It's a, bur it's a burning aim. It has to be done. It's not acceptable to not do it. I mean, it, it, the solicitor's case shows you an example of how some people are there to do everything they can to stop us getting justice in terms of these boats. This country welcomes so many people from so many countries who are in real hardship, who are genuine refugees, and that's the right thing to do. But this this crusade against what we're trying to achieve, the Labour Party voted 70 times against the illegal immigration bill. You've got the, the courts holding this thing up time and time again. But you know what? The model works. And you know how we can evidence that it works? Because the case that we've got with Albania... The agreement we've got in place with Albania, that means if you arrive in this country illegally, you are going straight back to Albania. Mm. That has seen 2,500 people sent back to Albania. And surprise, surprise, they've stopped coming. There are 90% less people coming across now from Albania than there were. And that's a deterrent. That's what's going to happen when we get the Rwanda scheme through the courts. And we're nearly there, hopefully. When we get that through the courts and people realise they can't just rock up here, they're going to be detained and they're going to be sent back they are going to stop coming. There are people out there who hate that as a concept, but actually it's the right thing to do. We cannot go on uh, paying out, what, £6 million a day to house Ridiculous. people in hotels across the country. It's just not acceptable, and we have to do something about it, and we have to do it bloody quickly. Yeah, yeah. well, I'll be back to make the judgment then in about five months' time, I guess. We'll have to uh, make, a, make a date for that. Matt, Matt, very good to talk to you. Thanks very much indeed. Matt Vickers, uh, Deputy Chairman of the Conservative Party, MP uh, for Stockton up there in the northeast coast. Uh, of this great country of ours. Uh, the weather's not great. It's August the 2nd. It's supposed to be summertime, but hey, what can you do? Coming up next, we're going to cheer you up, though, because uh, we're going to ask you that question once again. Is it a man? Is it a bear? Is it a panda? This is Talk TV. Across the UK, online and on DAB, the Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. If you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday on Talk Radio, via DAB, online or via the Talk Radio app. If you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio.